welcome to Oh It's Cancer. Today I am thrilled to be joined by a total boss lady, Dr. Cindy Mack. Now Cindy is my surgeon and she's been an instrumental part of my breast cancer journey so far. And when I say a total boss, I mean it. She's head of department for breast surgery at the Chris O'Brien Lighthouse here in Sydney. She's part of the team at the MARTA. She works closely with the Sydney Breast Cancer Foundation to raise valuable funds for patient care, medical equipment and education. And she uses her voice where it counts to speak about women's health and breast cancer alike. On top of that, she's a mum and I'm sure she has a lot of hobbies which we can learn all about today. So hey, Cindy. Hi, Jenny. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, it's been such a privilege to watch your um, social media and your podcast. Oh, well, thanks for fixing my boobs. And thank <laughs> you so much for taking the time to record this today. Honestly, I feel pretty lucky to have locked you in. Well, it took a lot of planning, didn't it? But we finally got there. Thank you for yeah. making all that effort. It's awesome. Now, it'll be great to hear directly from you today exactly what being a breast surgeon looks like. Now, I remember when I was first diagnosed, you were the first person that I met with after being referred by my local GP. And it was just a year ago. And a lot has happened since then, hasn't it? And I think we were sitting in this office, although I was sitting in the other corner. Chair was over there. And I remember at the time, it was a really big scary step into this completely unfamiliar world that I didn't really think I'd ever need to know about. I wasn't really sure even what a breast surgeon was. I didn't really know what to expect. Um, what I did know was that you'd come highly recommended. So tell us, what exactly is a breast surgeon? What do you do? <laughs> well, what a breast surgeon is, is somebody, we're talking about a breast cancer surgeon here, not a plastic surgeon, obviously. Um, someone who looks after a patient with breast illness, and it could be benign breast disease or it could be something like cancer. And what we are often the first point of contact for a lot of these patients. And as you know, breast surgeons' job isn't always just to do surgery up front. It's to make an assessment of what's suitable for the patient. And in your case, it wasn't upfront surgery. It was to refer you on to my medical oncology colleagues for chemotherapy first. So a breast surgeon's very important because often they are the first person that a patient sees and that their GP refers them to. And their knowledge of the entire disease process is very important. Breast surgeons don't only um, see cancer-type patients. They also see benign disease. And that means you know, making decisions about breast pain, breast cysts, high-risk patients follow up, that kind of thing. And ultimately, we are more than just surgeons. We are a little bit, we're partly psychologists. <laughs> we're a little bit, you know, um, counselors, you know, tissue providers, <laughs> hand holders. A good breast surgeon has to kind of be able to incorporate all of that um, into their practice, to be able to provide information and send the patients to the correct areas where they can access it if they don't know it. So what you're trying to tell me is that you're more than just a breast surgeon. <laughs> you're, a, you're a life coach. You're all sorts of things to patients. And hey, look, I can tell you from personal experience that that, I suppose, personal level of care and concern really makes a difference when you're facing something that is potentially quite scary. Now tell me, what kind of education and training did you undertake in order to become a surgeon? Well, when I went through university for my medical degree, it was an undergraduate degree and I did six years. And then you do a few years on the job applying to get into a surgical training program. Uh, it was five years of the surgical training program. And then I did 
three years of fellowship here in Australia as well as in Edinburgh before I returned um, to Sydney. Right, so that's a whole lot of learning just to get to the start gate. Now tell me, are there pieces of ongoing education or study that you need to do in order to sort of stay up to date on the latest, I don't know, surgical practice or, or research developments as they relate to breast cancer? Yes, there definitely are, and I think that's true for all subspecialties. Within the College of Surgeons, we have to meet um, certain college requirements for continuing professional development. But I think more importantly, if you're interested in keeping up to date, then you go seeking these resources yourself in the form of conferences, and there's always plenty to be had normally outside of the COVID environment. We'd be traveling a lot for that and also updating yourself via journal clubs. I run a journal club in Sydney for um, uh, several institutions with breast surgeons with a particular interest in oncoplastic uh, type surgical techniques. So th those are the kinds of meetings that really generate discussion and ideas. Uh, and it's great to be able to bounce off your other surgical colleagues, what they do and what they've learned, and these are the ways that we grow as surgeons. Awesome. You know, going back to, to young Cindy's days, why was it that you chose to pursue breast cancer from a career perspective? When I first started training in breast surgery, I will admit it was slightly boring surgery. You had very limited operations. You basically took out a cancer, you took off a breast, and you checked some lymph nodes. But as cancer surgery for breast has developed. We've developed a whole bunch of techniques that are far more interesting and creative, including techniques to preserve the breast and to um, make sure that we can take good margins while maintaining breast cosmesis. And these are all great little techniques that make breast surgery so much fun. In addition to which, I really just like my patients. I like talking to them. I like learning from them. They always tell me fun stuff. You know, the first few consults are stressful and scary for everybody and lots of information needs to be mm. imparted and absorbed. But then subsequent to that, we have fun like you and I do now. You know, we're, we're talking about hair and nails and with other patients, schools and holidays. So I think of them as almost as friends by the end of our five years together. Friends that have seen your breasts on multiple occasions. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> friends with no boundaries. Yeah, that's right. Now, I'm guessing, and, and as you've sort of touched on, that some of those moments, whether it be early on for some patients or I suppose further along the journey for others, would bring some incredibly rewarding moments as well as some pretty shattering conversations where outcomes maybe aren't as positive can you talk to us a bit about, you know, what that's like to deal with and, and what keeps you going in those really tricky moments in particular? You're right. There are some really horrible days and they're horrible for the patient more so than for me. But being the person who's got to give bad news is really unpleasant. Mm -hmm. And you only need one of those days where you have two or three of those conversations to really shatter you. Mm -hmm. I find that um, going to talk to colleagues in the same situation as me is really helpful being able to de-stress that way. Mm. My partner's not medical, so it's a little harder for him to understand it. And I think it gets him really down if I start talking about all these people with breast cancer. Yeah. So I have some very good surgical colleagues that I ring 
often we do it in the car on the way home from work and we just say we had a really rubbish day and this was what it was and everybody sympathizes and it just mm. feels good to be able to do that. And I meditate a bit and um, that's pretty much it. But usually I just go home and I give my kids a really big hug because I know how lucky I am not to be my patient. Mm. I was actually thinking that when I was driving here. Does it make it any more difficult or easier knowing that a lot of the patients that you deal with are either slightly younger or, or around your own age? I think it resonates a little bit more with you if they are your age and particularly if they have children around the same age as your children. I think mm. that must apply to anybody in any medical subspecialty. Mm. Um, but you can extrapolate the anxiety and upset of any patient, regardless of age or background, mm. uh, based on their, the fact that they're just human beings. Yeah. It's just awful for everybody. Mm. It's a bit of a grounding sort of a reality check. It is, yeah. I, I think it's really useful for me because it makes me quite aware of mortality and not afraid to have discussions about my own mortality. Mm. Um, but I will never be able to understand until I get, if I get a breast cancer, I will never really be able to put myself in my patient's shoes. Mm. And hopefully that never does happen. I hope not. Now, let's talk about the different types of procedures that you do. So I remember when I walked in here, my assumption was, oh, she's going to just do a double mastectomy and I'll get a pair of massive silicon breasts. Well, it turns out that's not what happens, everyone. So I had what's called a lumpectomy and a sentinel node clearance, which basically means for me, the breast itself stayed intact and just the tumour bed was removed. And then I had a little bit of a slice and dice in my armpit where some lymph nodes were removed. So I have, you know, a couple of very, very minor scars. Uh, and in terms of the breast scar itself, great job, Cindy. You would not know that anything had happened there. The scars almost completely faded on the breast itself. There's no impact at all in terms of the size or shape, which is something that, as you know, I was very concerned about um, before we had the surgery. Uh, the only giveaway is that kind of lingering, tiny little bit of blue dye that's uh, hanging around. <laughs> after surgery and I do have a I suppose as I said a tiny scar under my arm from where the lymph nodes were removed but you know who looks at someone's underarm well maybe unless you're a bit of a weirdo <laughs> but anyway tell us a little bit about the different types of procedures that okay you would do. I think it's important for your listeners to understand Jenny that your when you say tumor bed it was because you actually had chemotherapy up front yes and so I wasn't point. trying to take out a large chunk of tissue mm. I was uh, trying to take out the area where the cancer had been and what you had was a sentinel node biopsy which was taking out one or two sometimes three or four important graining lymph nodes from the breast cancer to check that the cancer hasn't spread so that's called a lumpectomy and sentinel node biopsy but there's there are lumpectomies and then there are lumpectomies mm. and the cancer surgeons who are trained in what they call oncoplastic techniques take great care to make sure the scar is hidden and the breast retains its shape. You might have a smaller breast, but it's really important to give it a good shape because you get one mm. good shot at it. Mm. So that's one type of oncoplastic technique. Other techniques include things like doing a breast reduction at the same time that you do the cancer excision or doing a reconstruction, or transferring tissue from the outside part of your breast to fill in a hole in the inside part of the breast. There's all these different ways of employing techniques to do what was essentially just cancer removal, but you want to kind of finesse it so that the patient's cosmetic outcome is the best that it can be without compromising the cancer outcome. 
And I, I know you touched on this earlier, but when you first meet a patient, I'm guessing that the GP or the local doctor would send you some kind of note saying, hey, here's Jenny and this is what we've found. Do you then wait till you meet the person and talk more before you assess where to from here? Or yeah, absolutely. The... You've got to examine them. That's one thing. You have to know what size breast they have and what size tumour they have. And people think that a tumour absolute size is the thing that predetermines whether a patient's going to get a mastectomy or not, but it's not. It's actually all relative. So for me, I'm a small Asian woman with not huge bosoms and, you know, a cancer that um, would mean a mastectomy for me might be a lumpectomy in a woman with a G-cup breast. Yeah. So there's a lot of meeting the patient, understanding what their breast looks like, how it sits, how happy they are with their current breast shape and size, and then trying to work out whether or not you can design an operation that will allow you to safely take out the cancer but retain good shape and cosmetic outcome. Mm, that's, that's a really good point. I didn't think about that difference. You know, the person-to-person, so small, small breasts to start with versus much larger yeah. one. Location of tumour is also really important, Jenny, yeah, right. because um, you can have uh, a tumour that sits, say, at the bottom of the breast where mm. we could take that out in a breast reduction pattern and still maintain a good shape versus a tumour that sits in the upper inner quadrant, and that's much harder to do. Mm. Maybe a dumb question, but I'll ask it anyway. I mean, how long does a, a lumpectomy or a mastectomy typically take in terms of surgical duration? So in my hands, um, about an hour to an hour and a quarter for the standard average uncomplicated lumpectomy and sentinel node biopsy. Was that me? Yes, you were one of those. Was I uncomplicated? You were uncomplicated. (laughs) And what about for, you know, a mastectomy? Like how... So if you're doing a reconstruction, on average, it takes me about two and a half hours to do a mastectomy and reconstruction for a small-breasted woman. Mm. You know, sometimes my surgeries go for four to six hours, depending on how long... Mm. how big the woman is and what size volume breast she has or how mm. tricky if we're doing two sides or one side. Mm. Um, does that sort of, you know, doing a surgery, let's just say somewhere between an hour and a half to three hours, uh, is that physically tiring for you? It can be. And it's particularly bad for your neck. That's the one thing that I, yeah. Mm. So my neck's not in the best shape. Uh, I have to make sure that I do lots of stretching in order to get it um, to unlock. Uh, And I can tell when I'm busy and it's a really peak cancer period because I can start feeling it in my neck and my shoulders. Mm. So, uh, yeah, um, it is physically tiring. It's mentally less tiring than having a conversation with a patient. Isn't that interesting? It is because you can put on a little bit of chill music. You can, you're in the zone almost, Mm. you know, whereas with a patient where you're having a face-to-face conversation, particularly if it's a difficult conversation, you've got to be completely on the ball about Mm. where the patient's coming from, what their family member sitting next to them is thinking, what the dynamics between them are, what her priorities are, what she's Mm. scared of. And so this is a constantly evolving thought process. Mm. And you have to keep, you know, switching around so that you know that you're in the same um, zone as your patient and you guys are on the same page. Mm. So interesting. And, and in terms of the actual surgery itself, you mentioned that you're, you're in the zone, you know, you might put a bit of music on and you can really just focus. How do you actually get yourself in the zone before you perform a very delicate surgery? Um, the most important thing for me is to know the patient and the consent form inside and out. Um, so I spend a lot of time preparing prior to the surgery. I do all the pathology forms myself so I know exactly what the pathology is, what we're looking for, what the size is, where it's located, what we're aiming to do. Then I go back through my letters and I have a look to see what my 
patient asked for. Some mm. people say, I'd like to be bigger or I, I really don't care. I want you to take as much as possible. I don't care what it looks like at the end. And all of this information I usually document and I'm able mm -hmm. to um, retrieve so that I can guide my operation that way. Good to know. So you've got a process. Yeah, I think that process is very important and there's a whole bunch of surgical steps uh, that are taken in theatre also so that the surgeons, for all surgeons, not just me, don't make a mistake and that's called a timeout process. So we check patient side, consent, um, who's present in the room, whether there are any concerns about the patient that you want to relate to your anaesthetist and other team members. Mm -hmm. So it's just to avoid any potential for mistake. Gosh, I remember when I was lying there waiting for my surgery to take place, I must have been asked, what's your name? What's your date of birth? Mm, what are you having today? Right. About 10 times. That's and right. Which side? Write yeah, a note, many allergies. Post it to my face. So. <laughs> Yep. No, we have to do that for everybody sense. multiple times. Yeah. Yeah. Even when I go over there for my Herceptin injections, you still get the same question multiple times. Mm. And that's for a simple jab. So, Cindy, I, and I know that you know this, a lot of the folks that are listening to this podcast will have been either just diagnosed or perhaps partway through treatment. And we also have a large following that is working out this whole life after cancer thing, including myself. So are you able to offer us any advice on you know how to best look after our health particularly during and then after treatment okay so there's two components to your health the first one is physical and the second one is mental the physical health stuff it is not rocket science okay if you smoke stop if you drink too much cut it back eat healthily and when we say eat healthily i don't mean you have to be vegan or vegetarian but do cut <laughs> back on processed foods and do cut back on uh, lots of sugar and high meat and high dairy um, exercise regularly, even when you don't feel like it, even when you're having chemotherapy, going for a little bit of exercise. You don't have to push yourself like crazy. That mm. will make a difference to your energy levels and to your ultimate recovery long term. So even if you're awaiting surgery, my advice to you is go out and exercise as you would normally. Mm. Um, when you have your surgery, there's a process of recovery so you don't hurt yourself and then a slow um, uh, movement back toward your full physical activity again and check with your surgeon what that should be. Um, so that's your physical health. Your mental health is equally important. And where I find this is really helpful is if you have other health professionals involved in your care, there might be integrative oncologists or um, complementary therapists to help with things like meditation, diet, psychology, uh, living with Living well after cancer is a tricky thing to do because mm. there's a whole bunch of psychological barriers like mm. fear of recurrence. Mm. Um, and then just when you have finished all of your treatments and we've been holding your hand every step of the way, suddenly we all fall away and you're left on your own trying to, you know, manage for six months without having seen, you know, without seeing anybody, mm. having seen us all multiple times over the last year. Yeah. So I think it's really important to find an institution Lifehouse is great that way because it's got that um, mm. living room uh, that can support you in that way. And if you're struggling mentally, don't be afraid to go and ask for help. Lots of people have that mental struggle and it is completely normal and totally understandable. Mm. I've actually just uh, picked up an appointment again this week with my um, cancer psychologist through again through Lifehouse. I was seeing her at a few various points throughout my treatment journey. So I'd seen a psychologist at the point of diagnosis. Then I saw uh, someone when I was at the end of chemo but before surgery. 
and then again during uh, radiation and I've left it for a couple of months because I felt fine but I suppose over the Christmas period and you know hearing all sorts of stories that people love to tell me about you know so and so who just died from breast cancer it's brought up a lot of stuff that I thought I'd I suppose developed appropriate coping mechanisms for and a few conversations lately in particular have really caught me by surprise. So I'm really looking forward to being able to debrief that with someone yeah. who deals with this stuff for That's a living. That's right, yeah. And lots of triggering events. Even your first mm. imaging after your cancer mm. uh, diagnosis is a triggering yeah. event. And that, that's common and that's understandable. Importantly, mm. though, the reason that we try and make you cancer-free is so that you can live your life. Mm, and that's really kind of no point being in utter fear all the time and miserable as a result of having had cancer, even if we've cured you or removed your cancer, if you're going to continue to live in that frame of mind, it's not a good quality of life. So it's important to address it when you can. Mm. Do you know what I found really useful? And again, you follow me online, so you know all this already, but is that I've developed some really great friendships and they were mostly through ladies that had reached out to me during through my page or ones that I had reached out to who I could see were further ahead in their journey. And a lot of us have now met in person several times. So we have our own little routine, our own little friendship group. So we can say all the things that scare us, but also the things that we're really proud of to other women who have experienced breast cancer in some way, shape or form. And it's been a really great support network. I've started doing uh, Pilates with one of my really close friends a couple of times a week. So we're keeping each other going. And at the start of every class, they say, do you have any health concerns we need to know about? And we just hysterically start laughing. And the instructors look at us like, what's going on there? I've got a bit of a lunch crew um, with another few of the girls. I'm going to go paddling with another one of the lovely ladies that I'd met. Uh, I met her few months ago now but um she's she's had some surgery recently herself so she's now back in into things physically isn't really, it great that women do oh, that kind of thing and support each other i think that's so it's valuable so good yeah. and I, I, as you say i think that mental health side of things is just as important as the physical health side and i remember when i was going through particularly that chemo phase mm. just you know doing the odd walk when i could or getting up and just being a little bit more active made me feel so much more yes. like I could control one small thing yes, that day. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So if people say to me, you know, can I work throughout chemotherapy? And I usually say, if you love your work, try. Because it's a really good distractor. There's mm. nothing worse than sitting at home feeling sorry for yourself. Mm. If, you, if your work's flexible and your employer is supportive, go for it. Mm. I did, and I'm really glad that I did. I've had quite a few people... Um, that I've met through the journey who also did work throughout their treatment and, we, you know, sort of, again, laugh hysterically and go, gosh, I would have probably lost the plot if I hadn't been able to keep working. But then probably an equal amount who said, you know, I, I actually could not work That's right. for a number of reasons. Mm. So as you say, it could be the employer wasn't so flexible. Um, it was too much from a physical perspective to yep. be able yeah. to go into the workplace as well as, for example, look after children and family responsibilities. Yeah, I think you have to do what works for you. Yeah. Uh, but don't feel that it has to be prescriptive just because you have chemotherapy. It means you're this person that sits on a sofa all day at home. That's not how mm. it works. I remember even along the way for me, it sort of chopped and changed depending on how I was reacting. So at the start, I was very regimented about days off and days at work. And then as time went on, particularly towards the end of um, chemo, then into the surgery and radiation period, I just sort of became a little bit more flexible around mm -hmm. how I chose to run my day. And that for me was a sign that I'm actually moving into the next phase physically, which was quite exciting. Yes. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's good to be able to, I suppose, have that flex if you can. Mm, that's true. Now, taking a bit of a step back, Cindy, I want to know a bit more about your role at Lifehouse. So you're head of department for breast cancer. So it's a pretty big job title. What does that actually involve? Uh, well, what I do is I, co- I predominantly look after the breast cancer surgeons, um, but my my role is really one that's a little bit uh, crossing over to all the other um, subspecialties like medical and radiation oncology. What we're trying to do is build a unit that's cohesive, that's progressive, that's not afraid of integrating new technology, new ideas and new research, but doing it safely mm-hmm. and making sure that our patients are not compromised while we're doing it. So we want to push boundaries, but we don't want to be crazy when we push them. Mm-hmm. And that means that the tiny little details like running a public clinic and how to make them smooth uh, to big, big picture stuff like introducing new technology to find lymph nodes or to you know avoid having to put a wire into somebody like you had. Mm. So it's, it's things like that mostly. And then, and then other things like making sure your staff are happy and well looked after, which is actually so much harder than I ever thought it would be because nobody teaches a surgeon how to do this. They teach you all kinds of things in medical school, but running a practice and managing people is not one of them. Mm. It's, it's, it's an interesting balance of things that fall within your remit. That's right. Yeah, that. it is it's a little bit of a middle management job, but it's such an important management job because how everybody in that unit feels really comes from the top. And mm. so it's your responsibility to make sure that not only are the patients happy, but the staff delivering the care are happy. Mm. So you have that leadership role, I suppose, where you're really setting the tone for, you know, the how we do things here, connecting people and creating that atmosphere for success. That's right, which is really hard to do in COVID, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's things like technology integrating, you know, uh, medical records that are online, um, trying to get um, processes in place so that things are seamless and things Mm. don't get missed. And you've brought up the the elephant in the room, being COVID. Mm. Uh, How has that looked from a surgeon's perspective? I mean, you've you've kept doing surgeries throughout. Yeah, well, we're cancer surgery, so we didn't really have an option to stop. But initially, Mm. when the pandemic started, it was really awful for us because we didn't know how virulent this was. Mm. We didn't know how to treat our patients who were coming into theatre. And then we had to make decisions on who got surgery and who didn't, who got delayed, which is really awful for any woman with cancer. Mm. So th- those were the really stressful months when our operating kind of really slowed down because of all the precautions we had to take in theatre, mm. which meant that we couldn't operate at the rate that we normally would, which meant, meant we had to make decisions about who you did and didn't operate on. Mm. And then as it became clear that COVID wasn't turning out to be as terrible as we thought, and certainly not in Australia, mm. things went back to normal. But the biggest issue from it is, was a delay in screening by lots of women mm. during those months where everybody was afraid. So now we're seeing that flow on effect where people are coming with um, delayed screening cancers. So they've kind of waited till That's they right. felt safe. That's right. And so they've everybody's then kind of gone at about the same time, which was pre-Christmas in my opinion. Mm. And um, it just felt like everything was just happening at once. Mm. And in terms of what happened in the operating theatre during COVID, what were some of the practical additional safety measures? Oh, there were lots. There were so many. So one of the biggest issues was the concern that the anaesthetist uh, would be exposed to particles during the intubation process. Mm. So they had to put on full PPE to do it. 
and then they had to wait, sitting there, not touching anything, for 15 minutes in, for the particles to um, subside mm. before anybody could come into the room. And then the whole process was reversed when you extubated the patient. But because they were in full PPE, they couldn't touch anything. So simple things like I forgot a cannula cap or I need a syringe. Mm. You had to go and, not, and stand at the door and ask someone to help you to do that. And it just slowed everything down. Mm. So that was quite difficult. And it's also really hard to operate or to do um, clinical work in full PPE for a prolonged period of time. Mm. It gave people terrible headaches. And are those protocols still in place? No, we've relaxed them a lot more now. Mm. We will do it for patients who are, who we have no choice but to operate on and we suspect have COVID, but oh, that's very wow, rare. Gosh. Yeah, That's a bit scary to think about that. Yeah, it's really rare that that happens. There's very few things that are truly an emergency that can't wait that you suspect someone's got COVID. Mm. Gosh, I remember I was really worried at the time as well about all the things you've just mentioned. You know, is there going to be a delay to my surgery? Am I putting myself at risk? You know, I was pretty much <laughs> in hard lockdown by myself at that stage. Yes, that's right. I was and petrified. Yeah, honestly. and so there were people like you who were anxious and ringing us, and mm. we had no idea how it was all going to work. So it was all pretty stressful. I must have changed the SMS reply message. You know, the ones that you said, the automated SMS responses about twenty five times in the first three months. Mm. And we got through it. Yeah, we did. We're nearly yeah. there. Well, I hope so. And certainly we've done a lot better in other parts of the world, so that's something to be grateful for. Mm. I've definitely noticed an easing from a gowning, or not an easing, a change in the gowning that my nurses over in day therapy have worn at various stages yes, through the year right. as well. Yeah. I remember at one stage, must have been in peak COVID time, they'd have their normal gear on and then they'd put an extra layer on and I was just sort of sitting there thinking, oh, gosh, this is really bizarre, like, isn't it Do you know what I really I miss, no though? Immune yeah, I, I miss not being able to shake a patient's hand. I miss not being able to cuddle them or give them a hug when they're feeling down. And that, like, such an important part of my job is to yeah. be able to do that, and I can't do it. And that's the bit that I feel most sad about. Yeah. You couldn't give me a hug when you gave me the all clear. <laughs> I think we kind of awkwardly were like, yay! <laughs> Now, Cindy, I've grilled you for about 30 minutes straight so far. <laughs> I believe there were some questions that you wanted to ask me. I do. I'm always really interested to see how my patients are affected by the cancer diagnosis and whether it's changed any of their perspectives on life, how they live life differently or do things differently now they've got this diagnosis. Mm. And Yeah, I'm sure a lot of things have changed for me. But for me, what was more relevant, I suppose is what has been re really reinforced for me as being important in my life. And it's something that I've, you know, I've thought about quite a lot over the past year. I've had a lot of time in my own head, shall we say. Um, and what's important for me in my life is just to, to just go for it, to grab every opportunity that, have, that you have to live. And that's really been how I've chosen to live my life, certainly over the past several years. And I really enjoy that way of, of being, you know, I don't get too stressed out or, or worried about, oh, what if, or what if I make mm. a mistake? Just bloody do it and go for it so as I was going through this whole you know so-called cancer journey I found myself in two rather I suppose polar opposite mindsets so on the one hand I was acutely aware of every sensation that my body was experiencing in a way that I've never really experienced before so what I mean by that is every single tiny even ache or pain slight temperature change you know this hair is growing the wrong way. <laughs> I was so conscious of every single thing that was happening. It felt like it was amplified and, you know, it kind of makes sense when your body is changing and mm. you have 
something in your body which you know has the potential to kill you that you didn't even know that was there. That was a really scary time and I was just trying to make sense of what was happening and in the absence of certainty, you analyse what's in front of you, which is all these things that are happening in your body. But then on the other end of the spectrum, I was also in this highly reflective state within my own head. So I was reflecting on aspects of my life before cancer. So it was the life that I thought I had versus where I was in that particular moment. And this is something that I've talked about with my girlfriends a lot. Some of us have described it, I suppose, grieving for that life that we once had. Mm. You know, I was just really thinking about where I thought I should be versus where I was, the obvious impediments that I was facing in that moment. A lot of them were physical at the time, so some of those awful side effects were pretty hard to deal with, not just from a physical perspective but mentally because it was restricting me in some way from what I thought I could or should be doing. And I was really keenly observing around me the lives of other people who had had or were currently facing cancer and I was really looking for clues about how to get through mentally more than anything. And what I'd really noticed, I suppose the common themes, if you like, in those people that I were observing were a few things. Um, grit, uh, determination, and a real ability to consciously channel that energy inwards so that you could focus all your energy on recovery rather than stressing and worrying excessively. And I really tried to absorb that as much as I could for myself. And I'm really proud of how I handled myself through that period. I just wanted to keep on keeping on, which I think I did. So what you're saying is um, all of the anxiety that people have about how am I going to do and all that, instead of mentally stressing about that, use all of that energy for a different purpose, which is how am I going to improve my health and my lifestyle? Is that what you yeah. mean? Right, okay. Yeah. That's good, that's good. And I think, you know, of course there are moments throughout where I was like, oh, no, this is so dramatic and this is awful and I'm really, really scared or I feel really alone. Probably isolated and lonely would be the main emotion that I experienced, particularly through that chemo phase. Mm. Um, But you were going through it with COVID around as well. Yeah. And that would have been so awful. (laughs) So literally alone Mm. (laughs) and bald. Uh, That was really interesting times. Uh, Yeah, it was... um, I'd be lying if I said, and, you know, for, for those who follow my page and listen to the podcast, you know the different emotions that I felt along the way. But what I've always been quite conscious of doing is, yeah, you allow yourself to feel whatever it is in that moment. So let's just say anxious. But then as best as I could, I would say, okay, you've had enough of, you know, feeling that particular way. Now it's time to focus on something else. Yeah, so that's a good way of doing it. Get up yeah. off your backside, go to the kitchen, get a glass of water open the balcony doors, get some cold air on your face. Those tiny little choices throughout the day yes. were so important. Mm, mm. And tell me, is there something that you would have as health professionals do differently that would have improved your experience? Well, you could have made days bigger. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, and th- there is one thing actually, and I actually spoke about it on one of my other podcasts. I think it was around getting organised early in chemo. Mm, mm, I saw that one, yeah. Yeah, and I still have all my little... Uh, color-coded folders from Kmart. In my and can I say that that is actually really important because it is quite overwhelming. So to be organized <gasps> is so, so important. I know that we give you so much information, but do your best to assimilate it and then organize it later when you get home. Big when you time. get home. And I think that's my number one uh, suggestion for improvement, not for you specifically, but just for the general medical profession, yeah. which is how can we actually harness the immense power of technology to 
automate uh, the things from a patient experience perspective. So as an example, if I get sent uh, over the road to have an MRI, I would then have to get a big old envelope, mm-hmm. find some bag big enough for it to fit into. Then I knew that a report was being written. And rather than that all being sent directly to you, as you know, you'd say, bring the scans and maybe the report if I'd been given it. If not, it would potentially be emailed and then printed out and then given to me. There was a lot of manual carrying back and forth information, wondering Mm. if I lost something, was I keeping track of everything? And it wasn't just the physical, you know, um, forms and scans. It was also stuff like I would love to have some kind of calendarized system, not just to say, Jenny, your next appointment with, you know, your oncologist is on Friday, but it's Jenny... Before you see your oncologist, you have to remember that, let's just say, three days before you have to go for a blood test. So you have to find a place that will take you on three days before and do those sorts of things. There's a lot of um, scheduling stuff that would be really helpful to have, you know, little pop-up reminders just like we do in, you know, the Outlook calendar or the calendar on our phone. Um, and I would consider myself to be an extremely organised person. And, you know, as the frequency of my appointments is starting to sort of pull back, I find myself going through my folder sometimes going, oh, have I got everything booked into my diary? Do I need to do anything before I next see Cindy or Sanjeev yes, or whoever right. it is? Because yeah. I don't want to make it a wasteful appointment. Mm. It would be um, great if we had an integrated medical record for everybody. Oh. Uh, but I think we're a bit of a way from that at the moment, particularly with patients who are worried about privacy issues. Mm. But it, you're right. It, it is a really stressful time without us heaping a whole bunch of additional appointments onto you without explaining mm. it clearly. So, yeah, yeah. And I think, great. you know, often it is explained clearly, but as you say, the sheer volume of information, mm. particularly at the start, yes. where you're just trying to understand, um, what's an oncologist? I literally don't know what an oncologist is. And then it becomes part of your lingo but when you are in complete overload about Mm. this thing that's happened in your life the last thing on your mind is all this admin yeah i think there's dollars to be made in this probably is if you can find someone who's interested in organizing the tech for that let us know i will help you (laughs) (laughs) but also in the in lieu of that having a support buddy who comes with you to the appointments is probably the other way of doing it. Yeah. Some, a scribe of some sort. Yeah, absolutely. I think mm. I brought my sister along yeah, when, when I first yeah. came in here, mm. and I ended up carrying around a little notebook with me um, to all of my appointments. So mm. I'd write down everything that was said to me, but I'd also usually prepare my own questions beforehand. That's also a really good tip. Um, you know, it was it was really good in terms of managing my own. Um, headspace as well so rather than festering on you know a particular question that I would have say ahead of an appointment with you Cindy I'll just get my notebook and write it down and then I'm like okay well I'll just ask her you know Google's not going to tell me the answer as much as I'd like it to (laughs) I'll just get the information direct from the source yep that's a really good way of doing it and it means you don't forget it when you get here exactly now, Cindy, do you have any words of wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners before we wrap it up for today? Um, no, I think you, you're the, you, aren't you the fount of wisdom here? Oh, gosh. You're the one who's given everybody. Okay, what I would say is life is for living. Mm. So um, I'm really sorry if you've had a friend or family member or you yourself have had breast cancer. I wish you all the best with that recovery. But do remember, 
all of us will eventually have our time on this planet. Mm. So live it well um, and that your medical professionals are out there to help you, mm. not to hinder you. So don't be afraid to ask questions. And if you feel your medical professional isn't answering it in the way you'd like an answer, don't be afraid to go and uh, have a chat to another person. That's very common and mm. that you're entitled to do that. Very sensible. And I 100% agree with your philosophy. Life is for living. So get out there. Enjoy your day, everyone. Do something for yourself today that's going to make you feel good. Thank you, Cindy, for joining me. I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed this. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. It's been good. And for everyone listening along at home, thanks so much for your time. This is Jenny and you've been listening to Oh, It's Cancer.